Well, I do want you to, to dive into John chapter 1 with me today as we begin a brand new message series that we're calling Come and See. It's a verse-by-verse study uh, through the Gospel of John. We are going to be taking a closer look over these next few months at the life of Jesus Christ, the greatest life ever lived. Amen? So last week, last year as a church, we focused on the life of the Apostle Paul. This year, we're focused on the life of Jesus Christ. So if you haven't made a decision to become a follower of Jesus Christ, I invite you to come and see that Jesus is the greatest one in the universe. Amen? Amen. And I want you to come and see that as we study God's Word together over these next few months. And if you made a decision to accept Christ a hundred years ago, I still want you to come and see as if for the very first time, that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, and draw closer to Him. I want you also to come and see. Well, growing up in the 1950s was a challenge for Mary. Mary was born with a cleft palate. She wasn't given corrective surgery so throughout her childhood years. The kids made fun of her. They teased Mary because her lips were misshapen. And her nose was crooked. She talked kind of funny. And so poor Mary went through elementary school thinking that she would never have anyone else in her life outside her family that actually loved her until she got into Mrs. Leonard's class. She got into Mrs. Leonard's class at the start of a school year, and as usual on the first day, the kids were looking at her face, staring and making fun of her. But she discovered that Mrs. Leonard not only was a good teacher, but she had a soft space in her heart for kids that were rejected by other kids. And so all the kids in Mrs. Leonard's class liked Mrs. Leonard, but Mary grew to love her. Well, back in the 1950s, I didn't realize this until this last week, but back in the 50s, it was common for teachers here in the United States to give an annual hearing test to their students. And so oftentimes they would do a whisper test where the child would be asked to stand by the classroom door and the teacher would be a certain distance away. The child would have to cover one ear and the teacher would whisper something and have to repeat whatever it was the teacher said. And so Mary, because she didn't want another reason for the kids to all make fun of her, she had learned that every year the teachers tended to ask one of two questions. Either, what is the color of your shoe? Or, if they didn't say that, They might say something like, the sky is blue. And so Mary learned to cheat on this hearing test so that the kids wouldn't make fun of her. But when Mrs. Leonard had her stand at the door, Mary heard her speak seven words that she would never forget. As clear as a bell, loud enough so Mary could hear and understand, Mrs. Leonard said, I wish you were my little girl. And those seven words transformed little Mary's life, and she was never the same. Would you agree that words are powerful? And there is no word more powerful than the Word of God, Jesus Christ. Today we're going to be focused on just one verse, the very first verse in John chapter 1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Allow those words about the Word of God to sink deeply into your mind and heart because we'll get back to them in just a few minutes. Well, whenever we begin a new study of a book of the Bible here at Impact, I think it's really important that we ask and answer five key questions 
Five questions that help us get our bearings and, and be able to understand this particular book of the Bible better. And so we like to do this at the start of each new book study, and so I want to do that with you this morning. Five key questions we need to ask and answer. The questions go like this. Who wrote it? To whom was it written? When was it written? Why was it written? And my favorite question of all, why should I care? And so we're going to tackle these questions together, starting with question number one. Who wrote the book of John? Well, as you might guess from the title of the Gospel of John, it was written by? Fantastic. It was written by John. Okay, which John? It's a rather common name. John Adams, John Quincy Adams, uh, you know, John Deere. You know, who was it written by? Johnson and Johnson. We need to know which John. So we look at the New Testament and, and study, okay, who are the Johns in the New Testament? And Bible scholars are almost in complete consensus on this. We believe that it was written by none other than the Apostle John, the son of Zebedee. So remember, Jesus chose two of the sons of Zebedee to be in the ranks of his 12 apostles, James and John. And in fact, both of those brothers, James and John, along with Simon Peter, were chosen by Jesus to not just be in the 12, but to be in the inner three within the 12. There were certain things that John, James, and Peter were able to experience that the other nine apostles weren't. For instance, the transfiguration when Jesus appeared on the mountain in glorified form alongside Moses and Elijah, only James, John, and Peter were able to see that. When Jesus was in the Garden of Gethsemane just a couple hours before he was arrested and eventually led to the cross, it was Peter, James, and John that were led into the innermost part of the garden to watch and pray with Jesus. And so John was one of these very special chosen 12, but even beyond that, one of the chosen three within the chosen 12. Now, interestingly, John doesn't refer to himself by name in his gospel account. He simply refers to himself as the disciple who Jesus loved. Isn't that cool? The disciple who Jesus loved. And so what stood out most to John as he was thinking back over the life of Christ and documenting Jesus' life and ministry and death and resurrection, what stood out to him most is that God so loved the world that he gave Jesus. And what stood out to him on a personal level was that Jesus Christ loved him. Isn't that awesome? Jesus loved him personally. Well, these four gospel accounts, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, each have a unique audience and purpose. Which leads us to question number two. To whom was it written? To whom was the gospel of John written? Now, Matthew, we know, was written for Jews. Matthew uh, has a very... Uh, kind of Old Testament fulfillment of prophecy focus when he tells the story of Jesus' life. And so he was writing to Jews. You'll find a lot of fulfilled prophecies mentioned in Matthew. And so writing to Jews as his audience, uh, we know that it was probably the Jews in Israel, but also throughout the Roman Empire. Mark wrote to a different group. We know that Mark was writing to Romans. Luke was writing to Greeks. So who was John writing to? He was writing, interestingly, to both Jews and Gentiles. We're pretty sure when he wrote this gospel account, he was in that great city of Ephesus. We've talked about Ephesus a good bit in the last year. Ephesus was the most important city in Asia Minor in those days. And so Ephesus was a very important city in the Roman Empire, and we believe John was living there. So he was writing, first of all, to Jews and Gentiles there in the city of Ephesus, but he wanted it to be circulated throughout the Roman Empire to tell both Jews and Gentiles that Jesus is the Christ, which leads us into question number three. 
When was it written? We believe John was certainly the last of the four gospel accounts to be written. We believe that Mark wrote his gospel account about 20 years after Jesus hung on the cross, so maybe 49 to 50 A.D. And then came Matthew and Luke that wrote their gospel accounts maybe 10 years, 15 years later. John was the last of the gospel writers. And so as he writes his gospel account, it was probably around 85 A.D. And so in 85 A.D., it had been about 55 years since Jesus had died on the cross. And it seems clear that by 85 A.D., all these other apostles alongside John had already been martyred for their faith. So imagine John writing this gospel account. It's been some 55 years since Jesus died on the cross. All of the other apostles have been killed for their faith. He's the only one left. And he wants to write down before he dies his account of Jesus' life and death and resurrection. Amen? And so he writes it down. Why was it written? That's one of the most interesting questions to answer. We are so blessed to have four accounts of Jesus' life, ministry, death, and resurrection in the New Testament. Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, right? We have four accounts. It's pretty cool to think about why each of these authors wrote their particular gospel account. Mark I mentioned, wrote to uh, the Romans, and his Roman audience was fast-paced. They were always on the move, so Mark has the shortest gospel account, and he wanted to present Jesus as the servant of mankind. Matthew, writing to his Jewish audience, wanted to communicate that Jesus is the king of the Jews. Luke, writing uh, to his Greek audience, communicates that Jesus is the son of man. He is the perfect, sinless human being. So why did John write to Jews and Gentiles? John wrote his gospel account in a way that's much different than Matthew, Mark, and Luke wrote their accounts. You see, John knew that it had been over 20 years since Mark, Luke, and Matthew had been in circulation. And so he didn't want to repeat what had already been said. John decided that he was going to set out to write a fresh gospel account for both Jews and Gentiles to prove that Jesus is the Son of God. So you with me so far? Matthew wants to prove that Jesus is the king of the Jews. Luke wants to set out to prove that Jesus is the son of man. Mark sets out to prove that Jesus is the servant of mankind. John sets out to prove that Jesus is the very son of God and that his readers, he hoped and prayed, would believe in God and believe in Jesus Christ and be saved. Well, Bible scholars refer to Matthew, Mark, and Luke as the synoptic gospels. How many of you have ever heard that term, the synoptic gospels? Okay, sometimes theologians, kind of like MDs, use big words that no one else understands so they can feel smart. And so some theologian came up with the idea, let's call Matthew, Mark, and Luke the synoptic gospels, and that'll keep all the lay people confused. What does that mean? The synoptic gospels is just a fancy way of saying that Matthew, Mark, and Luke focus on the same geographic area as they're telling the story of Jesus' ministry, and they focus on most of the same teachings and miracles of Jesus. So if you read Matthew, Mark, and Luke, you'll find a lot of things in common. The parables are oftentimes repeated in all three of those books. You'll find that Matthew, Mark, and Luke all focus on Jesus' ministry in Galilee and don't say a whole lot about Jesus' ministry in Jerusalem until the week that he's, he's, died, he's killed on the cross. But John is much different. John's focus is on Jesus' ministry in Jerusalem and around Jerusalem, and he shows that Jesus went to Jerusalem for a number of feasts during his three-year ministry and did a lot of ministry in Jerusalem that Matthew, Mark, and Luke don't tell us about. 
Uh, a few other things that you might find interesting, uh, John has seven miracles of Jesus that he highlights. Five of those seven aren't found anywhere else in the New Testament. Miracles like Jesus' first miracle, turning water into wine, it's only found in John. When he heals that man that was crippled there at the pool of Bethesda there in Jerusalem, it's only mentioned by John. How about the raising of Lazarus from the dead? It's only mentioned in John. And so John didn't set out to tell us miracles we'd already heard about in Matthew, Mark, and Luke. He sets out to share with us some miracles that we had never heard about before. Because he says later in the book, if we had recorded everything that Jesus said and did, even the whole world wouldn't contain all the books that would be written about Jesus. What I think is really interesting also about John is what he doesn't include. How many of you have read the book of John at some point? This may surprise you. You may not have noticed this. John says nothing about Jesus' birth. John says nothing about his childhood. John says nothing about Jesus' temptation in the wilderness or even his baptism. He says nothing about that. You get to the end of Jesus' life. John doesn't say anything about the Last Supper. He doesn't say anything about the Garden of Gethsemane. He doesn't even record the ascension of Jesus into heaven. Those had already been sufficiently covered by Matthew, Mark, and Luke. So John sets out not to share those things, but things that we had not yet heard. That's why it's not called one of the synoptic gospels. I think that's pretty cool about the book of John. It's unique. Amen? Amen. It's very unique. And so something else that you might find interesting is he doesn't include a single parable of Jesus. Matthew, Mark, and Luke, the parables are central to Jesus' teaching. John doesn't include any of them. And so what John does is he focuses in on one-on-one conversations. For instance, John chapter 3, Jesus is talking to that Jewish leader, Nicodemus. And he spends the whole chapter in this one-on-one conversation with Nicodemus. We never heard about that in Matthew, Mark, or Luke. Chapter 4, the woman at the well, that one-on-one conversation with her. It's only in the Gospel of John. Later in the book, he has more of the teachings with the disciples, his 12 apostles, and even some of the debates he had with some of the religious leaders, only included in the book of John. So this is such a wonderful book. Something else that I want you to understand about the book of John is it is a masterpiece of literature. All the amazing things about Jesus as the Son of God aside, it is a masterpiece when it comes to writing because it's written in the simplest language, but it's so profound. So I took two semesters of biblical Greek. So the whole New Testament was written in a language called Koine Greek. Koine just means common. So the New Testament, Matthew all the way to Revelation, was written about 2,000 years ago by a number of different authors in Koine Greek. And so it's not like the classical Greek of Aristotle or Plato or Socrates. Koine Greek was the common trade language Greek. And so it was really important in those days to be able to have a language that multiple nations could communicate in. It's very similar to English today. People in China, people in Mexico, people in Europe, people in Africa, many that do, you know, market trade and whatnot with other nations learn English. It's the trade language. It's also the language of pilots who are flying internationally because there has to be a language we can all understand. And so it was that way with Koine Greek back then. And so it was a rather simple language, but John takes it to the next level. It's even simpler than the language of all the New Testament writers. And so, John, when I was studying Greek in in, uh, college, we would almost always go to John to translate a passage because it's the simplest language. If Matthew, Mark, and Luke wrote, let's say, at a 7th or 8th grade level, John's writing at like a 4th or 5th grade level. 
And so the language is so simple. Martin Luther said it this way, Never in my life have I read a book written in simpler words than this, and yet the words are inexpressible. That's well said, isn't it? The language is simple in John. Even a child can read it. But a theologian could spend a lifetime plumbing the depths of the rich theology in the book of John. Chuck Swindoll says it this way, The Gospel of John is a masterpiece of storytelling. It is at once charming in its simplicity and challenging in its depth, a rare work of literature that fun-loving children and deep-thinking philosophers can share equally. So, why was the Gospel of John written? Well, John answers this question near the end of his book in John 20, verses 30 and 31, as he writes, Jesus did many other miraculous signs in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book, but these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. Isn't that good? Why did he write the book of John? So that you could know about Jesus Christ and have life in his name. And that segues nicely into our fifth and final question. Why should I care? All right, he wrote to Jews and Gentiles in the first century in the city of Ephesus and throughout the Roman Empire. That's nice and all. That's interesting history. But why should I care? I want to suggest to you three reasons why you should care. Number one, reason number one, because you want to go to heaven. And you don't want to go to hell. Now, I may be wrong on this. Show of hands, who wants to go to hell? Okay, anyone? Any takers? No, Jesus describes hell as a place where the worm does not die and the flame is never quenched. And that was just Jesus explaining it in a way that we could understand because hell is indescribable. It's indescribably horrible. And so imagine a place that is so horrible there are not even words in English or Spanish or Portuguese or Swahili or Koine Greek or whatever to describe how horrible it is. That's hell. None of us want to go there. So we want to go to heaven. And John is a book that lays the path out, who Jesus is and what we need to do to connect with him to make it to heaven. Reason number two why you should care about the book of John is because you want the people around you to go to heaven. Anybody want the people around you to go to hell? Anyone? He's like, oh, raise my hand too quick on that one. We don't want anybody to go to hell, right? We want our friends and family and even the people we don't care for. I'm not going to raise my hand the rest of this sermon, huh? We don't want anyone to go to hell. We want everyone to go to heaven. Amen? That's why we're here in this building. Because we want to see people go to heaven and not hell. We want to reach more people for Christ. We want to see our community saved. And the book of John, not once again, says who Jesus is and how to connect with him so we can go to heaven someday. This past Tuesday, I was invited to go over to Rosa Sharon Pregnancy Center in Victorville. And every once in a while, they invite me to come over to speak on the final day of their parenting class. Several times a year, Rosa Sharon offers this wonderful parenting class for these young ladies. Many of them are teenagers who have had an unexpected pregnancy, and they have no clue how to take care of this baby that they've chosen not to abort. And so Rosa Sharon will give them parenting classes for free, and as they attend these classes, they earn points. And on the final day of that class, if they've accumulated enough points, they can get free strollers, free car seats, all sorts of free stuff. So they not only are being taught how to parent their babies, but also have the resources to do it effectively. It's a great ministry, amen? If you haven't been to Rosa Sharon, I encourage you to connect with them. But they invited me to come over on the final day of the class specifically to share the gospel 
the good news of Jesus Christ. And I started out by saying something like this. I said, Rosa Sharon, as you can see from all the strollers and the baby seats and everything that's around you, Rosa Sharon is doing a great job equipping you with the stuff you need to help your baby be healthy and, and, and be nourished. But I'm here to share with you something that will meet your spiritual need. And I basically shared with them a simple gospel message that combined John 14:6 and John 3:16. John 14, 6, remember, Jesus said, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. And I let those in the parenting class. And by the way, it just wasn't the girls. Uh, many of them had their boyfriends with them. A few of the girls had their moms with them. The room was full. It was awesome. And so I was able to share with them that your good works can't get you to heaven. Your religion can't get you to heaven. Jesus Christ is the only one that can get you there. And then combining that with John 3.16, For God so loved the world that He gave His one and only Son, that whoever believes in Him shall not perish but have eternal life. That was the simple gospel message. John 14.6 combined with John 3.16. And where was that taken from? The gospel of John. If you want to share in simple, understandable language with a child, a teenager, or an adult who Jesus is, how critical he is for salvation and the gift of heaven, then you can take it right from the Gospel of John. It's a beautiful thing to share from the Gospel of John. I led uh, the group in a prayer at the end of my message, and there were several girls that made a decision to accept Christ as Savior for the first time. And so as soon as I said that amen... I noticed on the side of the room, one of those Rose of Sharon volunteers was handing out something to everyone that had made a decision for Christ. Guess what she was handing her? A Bible would be the first guess, right? It wasn't even a whole Bible. She gave them the Gospel of John. Why would she do that? Because the Gospel of John so simply communicates the truth about Jesus Christ and how we can be saved through him. Millions of copies of the Gospel of John have been handed out over the years, and it has led to the salvation of hundreds of millions of people because the Gospel of John is that powerful. Reason number three. The third reason you should care about studying the Gospel of John is because you want to get to know Jesus better than ever. How many of you, is that true of you? Okay, I know a few of you are afraid to raise your hand after my last trick question. How many of you, I, I, I guarantee you this isn't a trick question. How many of you want to get to know Jesus Christ better and better? I know I sure do. We want to get to know him better and better. In John 17, 3, Jesus gives one of the most marvelous, quick summaries of what heaven is like. In John 17, 3, Jesus doesn't focus on the streets of gold or the angels playing harps on clouds or any of that stuff we imagine when we think of heaven. He simply says in John 17, 3, in the midst of his prayer to the Father in heaven, he says, This is eternal life, that they may know you, the one true God, and Jesus Christ, whom you have sent. Jesus says, in a nutshell, this is heaven, to know the Father and to know Jesus Christ. And did you know that you can have a taste of heaven here on earth? You don't have to wait until you get to heaven to know Jesus Christ. You can get to know him right here. Amen? And so we're going to be experiencing a slice of heaven as we study the book of John this year together because we're going to get to, get to know Jesus Christ better and better and better. Amen? Amen. Amen. So let's get back to John 1.1. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word 
was God. Here's that great verse in a couple other English translations. New Living Translation says it this way. In the beginning, the word already existed. The word was with God and the word was God. And then the contemporary English version says it like this. In the beginning was the one who is called the word. The word was with God and was truly God. Now, I mentioned earlier that the Gospel of John was most likely written in the great city of Ephesus there in the first century. Ephesus, once again, was the most important city in Asia Minor in John's day. Well, something significant had happened in that city of Ephesus about 500 years before Christ. And it had to do with a certain philosopher. It wasn't Aristotle or Plato or Socrates. It was a philosopher, a Greek philosopher you may have never heard of. His name was Heraclitus. Say that with me. Heraclitus. I had to go to a pronunciation guide on Google to pronounce this name correctly. I was botching it up. So sometimes if I think about it ahead of a sermon, I actually try to figure out how to pronounce some of these words. So it's pronounced Heraclitus. Heraclitus lived around 500 BC and Heraclitus was a brilliant guy. Let's put his photo on the screen here if we have it. Heraclitus was such a smart guy that he's even quoted today. And so this is something that he said that people still quote today. No man ever steps in the same river twice, for it's not the same river and he's not the same man. That's pretty deep, isn't it? No one ever steps in the same river twice. And you think about it, yeah, that's right. Because the river's running downstream and I'm not the same guy I was even two seconds ago. So no man steps in the same river. So this is just one of many quotes from Heraclitus from 2,500 years ago. Well, Heraclitus had a particularly deep thought about the universe. Heraclitus believed the universe operates according to a rational structure, an orderly principle, which he can discern if we carefully observe its patterns. According to Heraclitus's theory, all the laws of physics, mathematics, logic, and even morality can be traced back to this one ordering principle, which he called logos. Now, sometimes we pronounce it logos, but it's really pronounced logos. What does that mean? Well, the translation of logos is the word. So follow me on this. Over the next few centuries, logos became a profoundly significant concept among philosophers. It referred to an uncreated divine mind that gives order and meaning to the universe. Now, philosophers are kind of deep. So you with me so, so far on this? Because I think this is really cool. So the Apostle John essentially adopted the concept of Heraclitus, saying in effect, the concept that pagan philosophers have theorized about actually exists. All the laws of physics and all the laws of mathematics and all the laws of logic and morality do arise from a single orderly source. There is an uncreated divine mind that gives order and meaning to the universe. And I'm going to tell you about him. Do you remember in Acts 17, Paul is there in the city of Athens in Greece and he goes to the meeting of the Areopagus. That was the think tank in those days. All the academics and all the philosophers and all the brainiacs in town got together and did nothing other than discuss the latest and greatest philosophies. Well, there he was, Paul in the city of Athens, and he looked around and he saw all these idols to different Greek gods and different altars dedicated to other Greek gods. And he found this altar that said, to an unknown God. 
And so he strikes up a conversation with the dudes in the Areopagus, and he says, hey, I know you've got all these different gods you worship. I even saw this altar to an unknown god. Now, this god that you worship is unknown because you don't want to miss any. This god you wish, worship is unknown. I'm going to tell you about him. And he proceeds to tell him about Jesus Christ, right? That really came to mind as I was looking at what John was doing here in John 1.1. John, in essence, is doing the same thing. You have been talking about and philosophizing about this divine mind, this uncreated intelligence in the universe that has formed and created everything that you see and experience in life. You've been talking about this divine mind. I'm going to tell you a little bit more about him. You've been talking about this impersonal force. Now brace yourselves because what I'm about to tell you will knock your socks off. The single orderly source is a living, breathing being. This mind is not just a floating mind in the universe. It's a being. This uncreated divine mind is a person. He has a name. In heaven, he's called the Son of God. And on earth, his name is Jesus Christ. Can you imagine these guys are being blown away as they've been talking about for 500 years, this divine mind, this creative source in the universe that formed everything because any fool could see that all this stuff in the universe didn't didn't just happen by accident. There is clearly design in everything from our fingertips to our eyeballs connected to our optic nerve to the way we can walk and talk and think and feel. All of it has the marks of design. And they knew this 2,500 years ago. They weren't foolish. They knew that some sort of divine mind had to create this. And he says, his name is Jesus Christ. But it gets even better. Jesus Christ, the word of God, the logos of God is actually knowable. You can actually know him personally. You can actually have a relationship with him. You can talk with him and fellowship with him and love him. In fact, he actually beat you to the punch. He actually was talking to you. And getting to know you and loving you long before you ever loved him. Isn't that awesome? John wants us to understand in no uncertain terms that knowing and believing in Jesus Christ is one of the greatest privileges in the world. Knowing and believing are key terms in the Gospel of John. Both terms occur over 90 times in these 21 chapters, knowing and believing, knowing and believing, knowing and believing. A lot of you know about Jesus Christ. I want to ask you, do you actually know Jesus Christ? A lot of you know about Jesus Christ. Do you actually believe and trust in Jesus Christ? There's a difference. Some in John's day and in our day have accepted the truth that our world exists the way that it does because of intelligent design. How many of you have heard that term before? Intelligent design. That's the term we use for God in scientific circles. There is intelligent design because, once again, any fool can see that this stuff didn't just spontaneously happen. I've got this little thing in my pocket. If I were to tell you one day that this just happened by accident, I walked into a room one day, and there was a dust plume, and all of a sudden there was a iPhone, whatever number this is, 12 or whatever the number, and this just spontaneously happened by accident. If I tried to convince you of that, you would think I am in. A nut is a good term. We'll go with Alan's term. Obviously, an iPhone has the sign of design. Obviously, the universe, the human body, every animal you look at, every insect, every bug. You guys enjoying the beautiful birds coming out this time of year? And little hummingbirds are coming out, so we're putting out the hummingbird feeders. And saw this beautiful, I don't know the names, what's the little yellow one that we see this time of year? It wasn't a 
Oriole? Yeah, an Oriole. A little Oriole I looked out on my back patio the other day. The thing is gorgeous. Wow, that happened by accident, right? And so in scientific circles, we can't talk about God. We can't talk about Jesus Christ. And so agnostic or sometimes even atheistic scientists will use the term intelligent design. And so we know there is intelligent design. It's just one natural step beyond that. If there's intelligent design, there must be an intelligent designer. And the intelligent designer is knowable and is worthy of our trust. The greatest privilege in life is to be able to know personally and trust implicitly the Word of God. Now, one of the things that's remarkable about the book of John is how quickly John makes it clear that Jesus is God. He doesn't beat around the bush. No lengthy, flowery introduction at the top of chapter 1. He doesn't do a bunch of introductions. He dives right in in the very first verse and makes it clear that Jesus is the Word of God and the Word of God is God. From the very first verse... He takes the Jehovah's Witnesses and the Mormon's theology and blows it to smithereens. Now, I don't have a lot of time to get into this this morning, but let me just say it quickly because they're going to end up knocking on your door sooner or later. So the Jehovah's Witnesses know that their theology cannot hold up to John 1.1. John 1.1 is so clear. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was God. A few verses further down, John makes it clear the Word he's talking about is Jesus Christ himself. There's no doubt about that in the first few verses of John chapter 1. And so the Jehovah's Witnesses theology is that Jesus is not God. The Jehovah's Witnesses teach that Jesus is actually the archangel Michael from the Old Testament. He is a created angel named Michael. And so when they looked at John 1.1, they could not reconcile their theology with what the Word of God says in John 1.1. And so their magic solution was to mistranslate John 1.1. Now I can tell you that any first-year Koine Greek student can look at John 1.1 and tell you exactly what it means because, once again, John is written in very plain and simple Greek. And so it's very easy to translate. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and God was the Word. That's a more literal verse by or word-by-word translation of John 1.1. It's very easy to translate. But what the Jehovah's Witnesses have done is gone in and changed the words. In the beginning was the Word, the Word was with God, and the Word was a God with a little g in God. A complete mistranslation of John 1.1, and they've identified other verses in the New Testament that speak of the deity of Jesus Christ, and they have changed those verses as well, and they came up with their new mistranslation of Scripture that they call the New World Translation. So, I tell people in our church, if you ever come across a copy of the New World Translation, I always want you to honor the Word of God. But the New World Translation is not the Word of God. You certainly have my permission to throw it in the trash. That is not Scripture. That is a mistranslation. It is not a translation. And so they purposely manipulated John 1-1 to make it say something it never, ever said and never will say. Now, the Mormons, they don't manipulate John 1-1. They just try to explain it away. Because the Mormons believe that Jesus isn't God. They believe that he was actually birthed by God with God's spirit life up on a planet somewhere there in the, somewhere in the universe. And so God and his spirit life birthed Jesus along with many other children. Guess who Jesus' younger brother is? Lucifer, Satan. So, hey, isn't that awesome? Jesus is Lucifer's brother. 
So they have messed with John 1.1 as well. And so John 1.1, once again, is very, very clear. Jesus is God. And John doesn't need any flowery introductions. He dives right in from the very first verse of John chapter 1, letting us know that truth about Jesus Christ. He is God. John makes it very clear that Jesus is God. Now, I want to share with you three life lessons here in closing that I think are very important for each of us to take to heart. Life lesson number one. For almost 2,000 years, the Gospel of John has been a tool in God's hand to lead hundreds of millions of people to salvation in Christ. So God wants you to study it, understand it, and share it with others. If you're filling in those blanks on your handout, there's a few blanks to fill in there. God wants you to study it, understand it, and share it with others. Never forget why it's so important to study the Gospel of John. You want to go to heaven. Amen? You want the people around you to go to heaven. Amen? And you want to get to know Jesus Christ better than ever. One of the most loving things you can do is to invite your family and friends to church next Sunday. I promise you, as we go through this Gospel of John study with you and your family and your friends and anyone you invite, they will get to experience Jesus Christ themselves. And they'll be told in no uncertain terms how they can connect with Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord, be forgiven of their sins, and be able to experience eternal life in Him. I forgot to do it at the beginning of the service. Adam, do we have those cards handy? Uh, we've got our ushers. If you weren't here last week, uh, we were giving out these new invitation cards. It's an easy way for you to invite people to church. Ladies, I encourage you to keep them in your purse. Guys, put them in your back pocket. I try to, whatever pants I'm wearing on a certain day, to have them in my back pocket because you never know what opportunities God might give you to invite people to church. So just raise your hand real quick. If you'd like a couple of these, maybe you got them last week, but you already handed them out. You need some more. That's an awesome problem to have. We've got a bunch of these. We ordered like 2,000 last month. So if you need any, just raise your hand. They'll get them into your hands. It's one of the most loving things you could ever do is to invite your friends and family to church. Life lesson number two. Because Jesus is the Word of God, He can bring order to all the chaos in your life. Amen? He can bring order to all the chaos in your life. This past Friday, I got a text in the morning that one of our faithful church attenders, her almost son-in-law, he'll be her son-in-law officially in a few months when he marries her daughter, but long story short, I got a text from the son-in-law and he said, I, I think that Amelia was killed in a car accident this morning. And I thought, Lord, no. It was just last Sunday on Easter after the 9 o'clock service. I was standing in this parking lot talking to Amelia. And we were talking about this week, and she was going to jump in and be a part of our hospitality team and help out. She was there when we went to see a Jesus Revolution back in February. Her husband had made a decision to accept Christ, and just such a sweet saint. And later in the day, I got a follow-up text that said, she's in heaven right now. And so life can just change like that. And I, I want to make sure we pray for Amelia and her family before the end of the service. And they're, they're in shock, they're struggling, and they're dealing with chaos because this was completely unexpected. And so when it comes down to it, God is a God who works in the chaos. 
And he can take our mess and somehow turn it into something profitable. Because Jesus is the word of God, he can bring order to the disorder and chaos in your life. I want you to believe that today. Whatever you're going through, he can bring order. If Jesus Christ can order the entire chaotic universe, think about it. This universe was in complete chaos. And he created an orderly universe. Imagine that. Imagine that. If he can order the complete universe, he can certainly put into order the chaos in your life. Life lesson number three. Because Jesus is the word of God, he can bring meaning to all the meaninglessness in your life. If you hang around our church long enough, you'll hear me say this over and over again. God doesn't waste anything. Say that with me. God doesn't waste anything. Tell the person next to you, God doesn't waste anything. Are you thankful for that fact? God doesn't waste anything. He doesn't waste anything. He is a God that can work all things together for good. So think about this. He can take anything in your past, good, bad, or ugly, and somehow use it for his glory. He can take your past addictions and use it for his glory. He can use your broken marriage and your broken friendships for his glory. He can use your crummy health and your disabilities for his glory. Right, right, Alan? He can use it for his glory. If you'll let him, if you'll hand over that stuff to him, he can and will use it because he is a God who works all things together for good. In God's kingdom, nothing is meaningless. Even if it's out of his plan, Jesus Christ can weave it into his plan if you'll let him. And some people will ask, well, how does he do it? I don't know. I don't know how he does it, but what I can tell you is he can do it. If you hand him your mess, if you hand him your chaos, if you hand him the things in your life that appear to be meaningless, he can somehow weave it into something that is transformational. Jesus Christ can do it. And that shouldn't surprise us because Jesus Christ is the Word of God. He's the Word of God. Please pray with me. Heavenly Father, we come to you in Jesus' name and we thank you for being the awesome God that you are. Lord Jesus, thank you for your grace, your mercy, your forgiveness. Thank you, Lord Jesus, for being the very word of God. Not some impersonal, divine mind, not some unknowable, intelligent creator. You are the intelligent creator who loves your creation so much that you became one of us so that you could show us how to live, so that you could die for us and be raised again so you could be a living Savior. Draw us closer to you, Lord Jesus. Have your way in us. I pray if there's anyone here who has never made the decision to accept Jesus Christ as their Savior and Lord, that they would make that decision today. That they would, A, admit that they are a sinner and need a Savior. B, that they would believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of the living God, that you're, only, you're their only hope to be forgiven and make it to heaven someday. And I pray that, C, they would choose to begin following you as Lord and Savior today. Pray that if there's anyone here that needs to make that decision, that they would make it right now. 
just coming to you and saying, Lord Jesus, I am sorry. Please forgive me. Forgive me for my sin. Wash me clean. I want you to come into my life. I want you to take the driver's seat of my life. I want to live for you. I want to worship you. I want to obey you for the rest of my life. I want you to be my Savior, and I want you to be my Lord. And Lord, we do lift up to you, Amalia's family. I lift up to you, the Herrera family. Oh, God, minister in a way that only you can through the chaos, through the pain, through the heartache, through the disappointment, Lord. Would you minister to them right now? May they know we, along with many Christians across this valley and around this world, are praying for them. I pray for others here, Lord, dealing with health issues. I pray for our shut-ins who are watching us online right now, Lord, who aren't able to be here in person today. I pray that you would minister to them in a way that only you can. Lord, draw us unto you. Minister in our lives. Love us as we need to be loved. Forgive us as we need to be forgiven. Change us as we need to be changed. In Jesus' name, amen. As we take communion together, if you're a believer and follower of Jesus Christ, we practice open communion here at Impact. We don't require you to be a member of Impact, just be a believer and follower of Christ. And if you didn't grab communion on the way in, you can grab it now and just peel back the cellophane by itself. You'll be able to get the cracker. And then after that, you can peel back the aluminum and aluminum foil and get the juice. But let's take a moment now just asking Jesus to forgive you for your sin. We came to him last week. I don't know about you, but I need to come to him again this week because I've goofed up in the last week. I've sinned in the last week. And I need our Lord's fresh forgiveness. Lord Jesus, please forgive me. Please forgive us for things we've said, done, or thought that were against your will. Please forgive me. Forgive us. We celebrate your body broken, Lord Jesus, and your blood poured out for the forgiveness of sin. We celebrate you, and we celebrate the fact that you're coming back someday to take us home to heaven. Let's take of the bread together. Jesus said, this is my body broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And let's take of the juice. Jesus said, this is the blood representing the new covenant, the forgiveness of sin. Please do this in remembrance of me. We love you, Lord Jesus. Help us to love you, to trust you, and obey you. From now and through eternity, for the glory of God and the advancement of your kingdom here on earth. And all God's people said, Amen. Amen. Those of you sitting on the far left side, you'll see a little bucket underneath your chair. Uh, please just pull that out, put your empty communion cup in there, and pass it all the way down to the other wall. And uh, that way we don't have to deal with trash on the way out. But we're going to have one final song here to close out our service. The Kona Ice Truck is out front along with the photo booth. If you're visiting us today, please stop by the impact table. They're out front. We've got a gift we'd like to get into your hands. It's our way of saying thank you for visiting impact today. But let's stand to our feet and lift up our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ.